Welcome to the Signal Fire series, a limited series of conversations. Just as fire can be set as a signal that can be seen from a distance for others to find their way, so too can our stories be a beacon for those who need a little inspiration to get unstuck or a little courage to take a different path. I'm Keshni Naika Washington, and I'm a writer based in Washington, DC. Today, my guest is Lola Naika, and if you notice the similarity in our last names there, it's because he's my brother, my little brother. He started off as a young boy with a poster of a NASA shuttle on his wall in South Africa, in his room, and has gone through really interesting things, being a chemical engineer, being a nuclear scientist at one point, worked in relation to the European Space Agency, he now has two patents in the U.S. and I want him to share with all of you how he managed to travel this crazy path and what did he learn along the way. So welcome, Lolan. Thank you. Got a background in chemical engineering, physics and aerospace engineering, and I've worked in the chemical industry, the nuclear industry, space industry, consumer electronics industry, and more recently in a, in a startup engineering company. I don't even know where to start because there's so much that you've accomplished. I know it all has been challenging at different points too. How do you describe yourself today? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't really, I don't think I, I, I think about how I, how I got to the place where I am on a day-to-day basis, really. I mean, when you, when you talked about doing this podcast, I started to think back over the past, 20 years and realized that it was really two decades mm-hmm. of what I, I suppose I could call a meandering ride through science and technology and different countries, different jobs, different roles. Looking back over the time frame, it, I think it's more sort of pushing boundaries for myself take myself to the edge of what I thought I was capable of and, and see how I do. Because also, I guess, where we're from in South Africa, where we grew up, a lot of the things that you've done and are even doing now, you're working to produce biodegradable particles for the the beauty industry and other industries right now on a new venture. Some of the things people never would have suggested to you to do or counseled you to do, the frame of reference that you had to break out of in order to even dream some of these dreams So tell us about this kid who put the poster on the wall and dreamed of NASA. Can you remember? I can remember putting it up. Um, I think I found it in your room, actually. Um, It was a... It was a poster in a Quest magazine, which is sort of like a technology publication. I I was reading a few of these things, like after you had read them and discarded them, I think, paged through this particular one, and that poster struck a chord and it ended up being blue tacked to the inside door of my room. But it wasn't the only shuttle I think that I identified with. I remember collecting one of these serial holograms you know, on, the, on the box of Kellogg cereal. There was a, a 3D hologram of a shuttle and I remember having cut that out and kept that aside and I had that for many years. That was the first, the first thing that I remember that was sort of space themed. 
in doing these things, I ever thought that this was something that I could be involved in. I don't think it ever, it even crossed my mind. It was something I was interested in, but you know, in the 80s and 90s, these were not things that people around us were doing. We didn't we didn't know scientists or engineers and space exploration. That was something that was you know people in America were doing. America was a very far away place to South Africa. It was apartheid South Africa in the 80s, too. So even further away, America's or these kinds of things were even further away for people of color. So I never really thought about the future in that way that I would go on to do these kind of things that I've ended up doing. It was only towards the end of school that I started to think about the future as in a career. Even during school, we had little access to information as to what an engineer did or a scientist did. I didn't know you could get a job as a physicist. I thought you know, a physics teacher was, you know, <laughs> studying physics, you end up being a physics teacher in a school. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that these jobs existed. I mean, we were told things like, uh, yes, you could become a doctor, a, a lawyer, an accountant. Or a teacher. Or, no. or a teacher. So these were the kind of jobs that I thought were possible. It was a, a long process to learn about what else beyond that bubble was possible, was achievable. So your first, I guess, career choice that you had to make was engineering. <laughs> well, chemical engineering, yeah. I, I recall <laughs> thinking about what I, I wanted to do. I know this is a sore spot for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a Venn diagram of, what, of the things I wanted to do and how it intersected with the money available to do those things. And the money available could only come from outside because in South Africa at the time, you can't just go out and get a student loan. I don't think it's even possible now, like you can in the UK or the US, where the bank will give you a loan and you pay that back later on once you start working. Unless you have the money to study, you cannot study. Yes. Uh, And the degrees were considered expensive. So starting my final year of school, I went on this big mission to apply for funding for whatever science or engineering field I thought you know I could reasonably get a scholarship for. Mm-hmm. I was interested in in everything really school, so you know from from biosciences to to physics to computer science. It was really difficult to choose. However, aeronautical engineering sounded really interesting to me and that was number one on the list further down was chemical engineering but how it ended up being was that there was only really one scholarship for aeronautical in South Africa and I did manage to get that and there were many scholarships for like things like chemical engineering because a big industry existed so just just given the probabilities involved I ended up with three scholarships for chemical engineering and I had to in the fortunate position of having funding to study and uh, having a a choice of who would pay for this yeah so you studied what you could afford to study based on the bursary that you got yeah it was the same for both of us my undergrad computer science degree was funded through a bursary that's why I did yeah. computer science but now I'm I had applied for computer science as well because if you if you remember I had spent like six months trying to program a, a game <laughs> somewhere between was it 96 97 yeah. just how it ended up 
which for the first year was okay uh, to me because it was a very general degree. You, one would study a range of fields, fields including physics and um, chemistry and mathematics. To be honest, that was probably the best year of the, of the degree to me because it sort of opened up my mind to what was possible, germinated these ideas, which would lead me to study physics later on, immediately after f- finishing that, that chemistry degree. You unwrapped the love of physics a bit more during that degree. You, you... Well, there were always these things at the back of textbooks that most interested me. It, we would spend most of the course going through the the early chapters, which were, you know, fundamental, important. But the really interesting stuff was, you know, the last chapter or the last two chapters where we get into things like relativity or in chemistry where you start to, to talk about how the behaviors of chemical reactions are anomalous because of things like quantum effects. They weren't really formally covered in the course, but I would spend time trying to trying to understand them on my own. Fast forward to the chemical engineering career, because I know it's not your favorite bit of your history. The dark years. The dark years. Because <laughs> you also had to move out to a town in the middle of nowhere in South Africa. Yeah. That uh. sort of isolation <laughs> as well. <laughs> in order to work off your bursary, which had a, your, a work obligation attached to the funding for several years. The, the scholarships aren't actually scholarships, they're called bursaries. It means you get funding, but you have to work at the organization after studying for the same period of time as your degree program, which uh, is a good thing um, because you have a guaranteed job after university, so you're not looking around. I never, I never had that gap at that stage of looking for a job because one was always lined up for me. But where I was headed was very different from where I had come from. Where I was headed to was the middle of the country in South Africa, very conservative. I was going to be working on a petrochemical plant. Yeah, I I think I joked at the time, but I said, you know, if nowhere had a middle, that town would be it. (laughs) So this is like, you know, newly post-apartheid South Africa. This is a brown person working in the middle of nowhere in a town that's, you know, majority white in an industry that's majority white engineers, correct? I'm sure you were in a minority in many ways in that town. There were good things about it. There were some bright spots. Then it wasn't always a good experience, though. It was isolating. I, I pretty much felt on my own for those few years. It was a cultural shock for me as well as a new experience going into a, a first job in this kind mm-hmm. of environment. Yes. Nothing was... can prepare you for it. <laughs> when I when yeah. I started working in investment bank, like what did I know? A brown kid from a brown only township suddenly going into this white corporate world of investment banking. It was a huge shock. Oh, like you have no idea how to interact even with people. I have spoken about this to a few people here in the UK, but I don't think anyone really realizes how big a change it is. I mean, it's not simply leaving the town and going to another town to start your first job on your own. This is um, the environment we grew up in was one in which everyone looked like us everyone had similar sort of views as us. It was very much a bubble. We never interacted 
really with people who didn't look like us. Yes. We were fortunate in some respects because our mum had looked for opportunities for us to to interact. Remember, we had done a speech and drama. I remember being about 16 and speaking to somebody who uh, didn't have the same skin color as me for the first time. I've, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and that was the only interaction, really, <laughs> for the entire time before going into university. And the university was a slow introduction because there was starting to be more of a mix of people, but people still stuck together. So people of the same skin color still stuck together, which I really found strange. Yeah, um, looking, I was explaining that to someone else as well, because obviously going to university, we're now allowed to go to previously white universities, but I never spoke to anybody who is white at university except for lecturers. I, everybody kind of stuck to their own bubbles, even in the same science quad. Remember the science quad where yeah. science foyer and people would sit on the floor in little groups because there wasn't any seating. It's just an open uh, entrance to the science building. And we would just sit with our similar race groups, basically. And yeah. <laughs> I never thought about talking to anybody else and nobody thought of talking to me either. So looking back, it's very strange. But understandable given that it was newly yeah even even in the classroom everyone would sit together in in racial groups and i remember looking around thinking wow this is really strange <laughs> so being in that town is yeah it's just an extension of that and going it, it was and i mean south africa and that sort of behavior of human beings i think is just sort of one extreme of what i think exists everywhere just fast forward like to a decade later in studying in the UK and people stuck to their countrymen. So people mm. coming from a particular country of Europe would only socialize with people from that country. Mm. Tend to sit down in class in those groups as well. Yeah. So it is, it's just general human behavior. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's not a safe environment. And it's a comfort, comfort zone, I guess, is yeah. the word. Yeah, if you can find one person you have something in common with, why wouldn't you hang out with them? Yeah, except I did the opposite. And the people <laughs> I, who I became very good friends with all had a similar mindset. We avoided people from our country as much as we could. <laughs> so this is in the UK you're talking about. This is in the UK, this is, yeah. This is much further down the line. Is there any advice you would give to somebody about chemical engineering? Like, the, what is the good part of chemical engineering for you? Like, yeah. I know you also made a really, really good friend out there. Um, so that was also something you took from that experience. Yes, who I'm still friends with, and he's in uh, a lifelong friend. Yeah, he's in the UK at the moment. When you say to somebody that you're a chemical engineer, nobody really understands what that means. They think, okay, you're a sort of chemist, but it has it has something to do with chemistry. It's not focused on chemistry. In retrospect, I've really appreciated having done that degree. I've I've managed to to use the things that I learned in that degree in many other fields across science and engineering working in many other fields and using what I learned there I'm glad I did it actually that's cool to be able to, to see that you only see that later on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not during the dark years um, no yeah it was it was tough because I was also um, immediately after doing uh, chemeng I signed up for a, another 
undergraduate degree in physics, which I did part-time. So this is working full-time on a plant and then coming home and doing, trying to squeeze in another three, four hours of physics studies to try and finish a degree in three years. It was very little sleep. I would probably get like five hours uh, at most sleep. I would never go to bed before midnight, which is why I still can't go to bed before midnight. Yeah, I was going to say, nothing much has changed. <laughs> yeah, for 17 years later. Uh, but all of this was sort of forged back then. And the weekends, there was there was just more time to study. So it was there was no socializing. No, I never watched TV. Except for that, uh, the TV I borrowed from you, which you borrowed from a friend when they were on holiday one one time, and I had it for like two weeks. And um, my friend and I still talk about it because it, it sat on a on a Coca Cola crate in yes. the living room. Uh, the the apartment was completely empty because I never wanted to buy anything because I considered the purchase of any physical goods like a weight that was holding me back from moving elsewhere. <laughs> so I tried to live as light as possible. So we sat on some old cushions I brought up from a trip to Chatsworth, and we watched uh, a, a, a few programs on this borrowed TV that sat on a Coca-Cola crate. And you know, we, we lived with a few forks and knives, like probably like three or four plates. Yeah, it was it was if you talk about minimalist minimalist living, the, we we epitomized it, and we continued to do that for many years afterwards. We still talk about that every time we meet up, and how how great it was to to live light, to be able to not be weighed down by one's possessions, and having just moved house and having to have two moving trucks move all of the junk I now own. It's, it's, it's interesting to think back to the days of living light. Fight Club quote, actually. Really? Yeah. In Fight Club, they say, he says, the things that you own actually own you. Do away I, I with feel, your stuff. I feel that way now because there's a lot of things that I've accumulated over the years which are sentimental. And I, in, in moving house recently, I really struggled to get rid of stuff. And it ended up being boxes and boxes of, you know, what what could be described as just junk, except that I have some memories attached to them. So back then, I, I made a deliberate point of living as light as possible, um, but that was with everything. Uh, so physical possessions and also um, uh, social interactions, unfortunately. <laughs> so for, for, for many years in my 20s, I deliberately stayed single in order not to be uh, tied down. Not the typical behavior of somebody who's a professional graduate, who has a regular salary, able to not do whatever they want. So yeah, that's definitely not the normal choices that people would make at, in your early 20s. But you had, a, you had a vision, right? You had this drive to finish this physics degree. Why? I didn't think that what I had done with chemical engineering and getting a job in a petrochemical company was enough to get me to the next step. That next step involved uh, getting. It's definitely not just another promotion. No, no, no. This was this was a move out of the country in aligned with more space technology. It was one night. I was outside. It was very clear. You could see the stars, as is often the case in South Africa. I remember the night clearly and thinking to myself, "I'm not really 
enjoying this degree, is there something that I, I, I can focus on in the future that would excite me with that looking back, I could see it was an achievement. I formulated this plan to work on a space program of some sort. And at the time, I think I was watching a lot of Apollo documentaries. So I was mm-hmm. influenced by what was possible in that time frame of the 60s. At the time, I had sort of plotted a course of how I would do these things. And one of the early steps in that course was that after the chemistry, I would study physics to give myself something that was more related to space technology, a job in the space industry. In order to get a scholarship to study abroad, one must outcompete one's peers. And I had to get the degree as a distinction. There was, because having looked at all of the requirements for scholarships, there was no way I was going to get anything if I didn't have at least the distinctions. I would have considered myself a failure if I had not. So I decided that I would devote all my energy. By that, I mean everything. Mm-hmm. Every waking hour, every thought. So there's obviously more opportunities in the science field outside of South Africa, especially at that time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> there were very few opportunities in South Africa. The, the field was non-existent, really. Aircraft maintenance, I think, probably. Um, maybe defense um, was as close as you could get. But actually working on you know the kind of technology you see in those Apollo documentaries, that was, that, was, that was impossible. And uh, this is partly why I never talked about what it was what I was really doing during that time to anyone. I mean, you had some idea of what I was up to, probably not the full picture, but I I never really talked about it to anybody because opening up my plans, my ideas, my goals to other people invited me opening myself up to their limitations, I thought, Mm. because other people would advise me about the difficulty of going after what I was going after. And I say that because it, it happened a few times, so I, I just stopped talking about it because I thought I didn't want other people to impose their limitations on me. Yeah. So I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I thought it was possible. I didn't know exactly how to get there, but I thought that if I took one step at a time in a direction that was roughly aligned with where I wanted to go, that eventually over time, could get there and what I had available to me wasn't like brilliant intelligence I didn't think of myself as being very intelligent compared to all of the the people around me like who studied like I I I ended up studying next to people who I you know I thought were really good uh, to whom things came naturally whereas I had to work really hard just to be able to match them and so I thought one of my strengths was that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much committed to working hard. I can, I can use that to my advantage by outworking anybody else and therefore compete in that way and get to the next step. So that's what I did. I, I think hard work is the only thing I'm really good at. I can stay pretty focused for long periods of time. There are prices to be paid for doing this. I... <laughs> 
definitely don't think that's the only thing you're good at. You're definitely very smart too and talented. You're my brother and I definitely think so. Totally unbiased opinion. Hard work, yeah, that's a testament to the single-minded devotion to this dream, this vision that you had that pulled you to block out everything else and commit and work hard. I think you can have whatever talent you're born with, but if you work hard, hard enough. That's almost the mandatory ingredient to get somewhere, to get where you're going. If you're willing to put in those kinds of, that kind of dedication and hours and learning and time and make sacrifices, because that's what you did. I, yeah, I think exactly. the, the key ingredient is, unfortunately, it, it's to sacrifice something. <laughs> you, you can't live the normal everyday life and still try to achieve some difficult things. And it would, what is difficult is, uh, I guess, defined on a personal basis. To push myself, I found, to the edge of what I thought was possible, both in stamina to, to work hard and in just capability, to intellectual capability, required sacrifice. And for me, the, to, to trade time doing fun things, like, I guess, watching Netflix these days. Uh, <laughs> Going to bars, uh, hanging out less, with... Less fun friends. things like, yeah, you know, sitting in front of some difficult problem and racking your brains trying to solve it and not going anywhere for a few days, like writing a book. Mm. <laughs> I don't think you can get anywhere without that kind of sacrifice and hard work. And there's this, there's this simplified view um, that I've found people say to me over the years that, you know, you have to, you have to work smart, not hard. And I mm. say it, I think this is a simplified view because when you're trying to do things when that are, difficult when you're trying to do things that are pretty much uncharted territory and that are large these are not small things these are large things. yeah knowing what the smart thing to do is really difficult there's no way you can know what the smart thing to do is if you've you've never been in this space before you've never been <laughs> in this situation before and there's nobody you can speak to about it because there's nobody else who's done it before so knowing what the smart thing to do is is really difficult and you, I think you can go a long way to substituting that which is hard work and the hard work involves trying a lot of different things and from there find a way to make progress you, you find what the slightly smarter thing to do is but you only get to that by trying a lot of different things and failing a lot of times uh. I wouldn't say that everything I've done has been a success, but the balance has certainly been in that direction. That's really profound. And I totally understand what you're saying. Even trying to write a book, it takes a lot of logging off of all social media, not going anywhere, sitting in one place until you have 65,000 words or more on paper. And then you still have to do even more hard work to make it look good and sound better. I've given up a lot of weekends for years to complete my first book. I would, you know, work nine to five. And on the weekends, I'd get up early in the morning and get in front of my laptop and work eight hours or more on Saturday and Sundays and then get back to work. Yeah. I understand some of what that, I understand what you mean by that kind of sacrifice and dedication. A lot of this is thinking back to those dark years. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the middle of South Africa. And it was difficult, not because of the time commitment and the sacrifice, but it was sacrifice with no guarantee of success. Yes. So I knew that every day I would come home and com commit myself to three to four hours sitting at that desk in, in that room with those books in front of me. And I would sometimes be exhausted from like a 12 hour shift on the plant. And I would still sit there, even if only 10 minutes of those three hours was me absorbing anything, I would still sit there because there was 10 minutes more of progress that I've made on that day. I tried to optimize as much as possible. I recall being on a lunch break, on the middle of a construction site for a new plant with hard hat and overall, dirty overalls on. I'd go to go to a quiet area in the plant, uh, pull out my sandwich, and then in one hand and on the, in the other hand, I'd pull out a, a textbook and I'd say to myself, well, you know, in this half an hour, I can get through a few more pages. I, I would spend as, as much time as I could trying to make progress and... I think all of this adds up. So every few minutes, one can spend dedicated work towards a goal, I think, helps. It doesn't have to be a defined period of time uh, on a defined day when the situation is in a particular way. You know, things are quiet, the house is quiet, or uh, I feel good, I'm not ill. You know, just <laughs> find every, every few minutes of... Uh, taking the opportunity to make progress every few minutes here and there, I think, matters. I, I look back in awe of myself over those three years because I've tried to recreate it, I've tried to redo it. I haven't been able to. It, it was just, I guess, the confluence of being in, a, in the right situation and not in a good situation. <laughs> being in the wrong situation, having a clear idea of where I wanted to go and having the ability to commit myself to it you know this is without the, the responsibilities of things like family kids goals I lived off that momentum for many years afterwards it changed your life because it, yeah you left work which I know was also difficult to leave your professional job as an engineer and embarked on this journey in physics after that so that it changed your life in my head it was it was a very clear choice so when I was presented with the opportunity, I just said yes to it. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. Some, some of the time it's just sort of waiting around for that opportunity to come to you because there's only so much within one's control. Yeah. I, was, I was on a trip in the U.S. a few years ago and sat down with the owners of, the, of a company I was working with. And the guy asked me you know, over, over dinner and drinks, yeah, so, so tell me about yourself. How did you come to... To, to be where you are. And mm -hmm. I just said to him, yeah, it's 50% choice, 50% chance. Yes. And, then, uh, and I still believe that there's, there's only so much that's within our control. I think we should really maximize the effort to, to reach our, our potential, to use as many of the resources available to put ourselves in that position, such that when the opportunity presents itself, and it's a waiting game for when that is that one can identify it to know to know it when you see it, and then to have the I guess the courage to just say yes, I'm willing to take the risk. There, there's some doubt whether this is that opportunity, but it looks like it. 
I'll just go ahead and see what happens. And I think that's been the theme of a lot of things I've done over the years, which is why it looks like the sort of meandering path through a lot of different fields and countries and technologies. And, yeah. A lot of people can relate to so much of what you're saying, even from a writing perspective. I have a lot of admiration for people who have little kids and I've heard of some writers in my writing group, they write for 15 minutes while their child is uh, on their nap. And then they write for maybe half an hour later after they put their child to bed and they clean up the house. And, and then they make progress this way and complete books and get published. And, and I know you know a bit more what that feels like now with two young kids as well. <laughs> and what you said about whatever few minutes you can put towards it in your day is never wasted. It's always progress towards that vision and that goal. And what you said about not having examples either, if people can understand what that's like, it's just there's a darkness, there's no path. This is also what this podcast is about, is about sending out some signal flares, about lighting a few torches so that other people out there can have something to, to guide them by. I know there's a lot more information available now at your fingertips. It's still difficult to take these steps. It's still difficult with all of that available. It takes some courage. As you said, it's a leap of faith. I know you didn't say those words, but it is kind of a leap of faith in yourself, in what might come. You just have to put yourself into the unknown. I think that's courageous and admirable in anybody who does it in whatever they're trying to pursue. You've been listening to part one of my conversation with Lola Nyka, scientist and engineer. Part two will be coming out really soon next week. So check back in or check out www.keshniwashington.com for more information. See you soon.